Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue studying God's Word together. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk will be sharing sermon number two in our series entitled Worship Matters. Specifically, Pastor Kirk will be looking at Genesis chapter 28, 16 through 22, and Genesis 35, 6 through 7, as he looks at the topic, the path to worship. Let me invite you to worship with us at Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com. If you have more questions, be sure to email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Again, that number is 479-442-4634. Well, we're going to be looking at worship until Easter time, and so we want to listen together as we study and understand the big truth that worship matters. Worship matters. God created humans to be worshipers. It is our purpose in life, especially as Christ followers. Nothing else is more important. Not your job, not your career, not your school, not your ambitions, not your hobbies, not even your family is more important than your worship of your creator, the living God. We hear a lot today uh, emphasizing, in churches even, uh, that you need to find your passion in life. And oftentimes there's more frustration created by that than encouragement because it's difficult to find uh, our passion and it be our career. For some people, I guess that works, but... It's far more important to find your purpose in life. And your purpose as a child of God is to worship. And as you grow in your walk with Christ and in your devotion to Christ, I believe that purpose will also become a passion to you when the purpose and your devotion to it is in the right place. So what is Worship. What is it exactly? There's a lot of things that we talk about uh, being worship. Maybe the music portion of the service, or maybe a particular style of music, or maybe some other phenomenon when something uh, outside of ourselves kind of moves into a service and takes over. And all those things can be a part of worship. But basically speaking, worship defined is this. Worship is honor that is paid to a supreme being. That's a very simple definition. Honor that is paid to a supreme being. And that supreme being uh, could be uh, material things, It could be other humans that aren't really superior, but your love for them and your devotion to them has become so high that it is worship the honor that you pay to those people or those things. 
But basically speaking, when the Bible uses the word worship, it's talking about homage, honor, respect, reverence, love, adoration, praise, glory that is given to a superior being. And understand that in the Bible, that can go either way. That's not a holy word uh, because oftentimes God's people were found worshiping false idols. They were found worshiping things that were not worthy of their worship. They had taken their worship of the true God and they had directed it towards something else highly valued in life. And can I say that you and I can be guilty and are often guilty of the very same thing. Now, last week we read a passage that's kind of our uh, theme uh, for this series of messages on worship, and it came from John chapter 4. We're not going to turn and read there, but if you remember, it's the account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, and the discussion, or at least a portion of the discussion, that took place between them in this particular encounter. It gives us the heart and soul of what true worship is supposed to be. And so in that discussion between this Samaritan woman and Jesus, we emphasized four important truths. Let me review those very quickly before we get into our text for today. What we said last week, first of all, is that worship is important. It is a priority. It should be the priority in life. Number two, we often miss the point of worship. We often are like this Samaritan woman uh, who misunderstood what worship was really all about. She was making it about a place. She asked Jesus, she was a Samaritan, she asked Jesus, a Jew, well, who is right? Our fathers who worshiped in this mountain? Or what about you people, you Jewish people, who say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem, which is right. She put the emphasis on a place. But Jesus emphasized to her that worship is not about a place. It is about a person. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask me for living water that I would give to you that would become a well springing up in your heart of life, and you would never thirst again for spiritual things because you would have found me. So we often miss the point of worship. And so in response, Jesus shows us the heart of worship, and he says that we are to worship not so much in this place or that place, but we are to worship in spirit and in truth. Both are co-equal. There are some people today, and Baptists can be known for this, to worship the Lord in truth. Sometimes it is cold orthodoxy. And there's no life, there's no heat, there's no enthusiasm, there's no emotion involved because we're afraid of those people who go too far that way. There are some this morning who worship God in spirit or at least in emotion and enthusiasm, but the truth is missing or at least it gets lost in the shuffle. But Jesus said both are necessary. Now, you and I will go to a Razorback football game 
or basketball game. And because it's the thing to do, we will lift our hands and we will call the hogs, you know, to the point that we don't have any voice left to sing God's praises on Sunday. But God forbid that any hand should ever slip up in a Baptist service. God forbid that I ever sing with such enthusiasm that somebody around me hears me. You don't worry about that at the football game. You don't worry about that at the basketball game. I mean, you, are, you give it your all. I'm going to tell you what. Jesus Christ is worthy of no less. Some of us are very idolatrous in our worship of our favorite team or whatever. And some of you might even get a little caught up in that this afternoon and miss out on giving God the same kind of attention and adoration. Spirit and truth. And then fourth, we said God is actively seeking true worshipers. We didn't make that up. Jesus said it. God is seeking such to worship him. So I want to talk to you, after talking last week about the priority of worship, I want to talk to you this Sunday and next Sunday, Lord willing, about the path to true worship. For it is a journey. And for us to worship God in spirit and in truth, with all of our hearts, there is a pathway that sometimes is perilous. There is a pathway that certainly is sometimes painful, that if we will walk it faithfully, we will learn what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, before I read the text, let me give you the background to it. You remember your Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah. God called Abram, said, I'll make of you a great nation. And in spite of that, God gave him one son of promise. He ended up with two sons, but one was a son of promise. His name was Isaac. When it came time for Isaac to be married, Abraham and Sarah sent back up to the homeland where they had come from, where they had family, to find for him a wife. And the servant comes back with Rebekah. So we have Isaac now and Rebekah. And so we find that Rebekah gives birth to twin sons. You might call them unidentical twins. All right? Do you remember their names? Who? Esau and Jacob. Some of you said Jacob and Esau, but I'm going to use the name in their birth order. They were born Esau and Jacob. And a very unusual thing happened among some other unusual things about the birth of these two sons. Even as Esau was being delivered, his younger brother uh, Jacob, his hand comes out of his mother and grabs a hold of the heel of his brother. Now, can you imagine that happening? Well, it gives birth to his name. He is called Jacob. Now, According to tradition and according to culture, understand that the firstborn is the one who receives the birthright 
as being the eldest born, the eldest son, and then later the blessing that would come from the father uh, spoken over that elder son, the birthright and the blessing. But in the story of Esau and Jacob, God turns that upside down. And you find that there is a truth that kind of weaves its way through Scripture, not only in this story, but throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. You see, you might say this, that Esau and Jacob represent humanity in a way. They represent humanity. And the first that comes represents the flesh. Esau represents the flesh. No flesh will see God at any time, at least in the flesh alone. Understand we have to be redeemed. We are born into this world as sinful people separated from God. We are Esau's, as it were. But then Jacob comes along, and Jacob represents the spirit. That first of all, we're born physically, then we are born spiritually. The flesh and the spirit. Paul talks about this in his letters in the New Testament. There's first the old man, and then there is the new man. So Esau was a man who was very much uh, a man of appetites. He was a man that very much uh, was led by his own passions in life, lacking the priorities and the truth of life. You find uh, in the story that Esau one day was willing to sell or trade away his birthright as the firstborn for a, a mess or a bowl of stew. He was famished. He was hungry. He had been out hunting. His brother had made this big pot of stew, and he was willing to trade away his birthright for his fleshly appetites. Later on, by the instigation of Rebekah, his mother, and by deception, we find that Jacob deceives his father, Isaac, and receives the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau, but it went to Jacob. Now, I know what you're thinking. How can God be in all of that? How can he? And the answer is very simple. He just is. He just is. God is at work here to accomplish things, and sometimes God chooses methods of work that we don't fully understand. So Jacob, the younger son, ends up with not only the birthright, but the blessing. And because of that, Esau says, I'm going to kill you dead. And that's the only way you can kill a person, right? Kill him dead. He's going to wipe him out. He swears out uh, that he would destroy him. And so Jacob has to flee for his life. The only place he knows to go is north, northeastward, back towards Haran, where his mother had come from. Her brother Laban still lives there and other family members. And perhaps there he would be safe. So here is Jacob. He is on the lamb. All right? He's running for his life. We take up our reading in Genesis chapter 30, or ch chapter 28. Did I say 28 earlier? Did I say 35? It's 28. With verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba 
and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder or a stairway set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the son, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God for it. I have just two points for you today. And one of them is going to be identified with this passage. The other one will turn over a few pages and read, and the second point will come from it. I've called this Jacob and the house of God. He named that place Bethel. Beth-el. Beth, house. El, the name for God. Beth-el. Well, I've already given you the background to this man named Jacob. He was a bit of a conniver. He was a bit of a deceiver. He was the younger brother to Esau, except one thing we might say in addition to him, and it has to do with his name. You remember the birth story. I told you about that earlier, about him clutching his brother Esau's heel. That's why he was named Jacob. The name Jacob means heel grabber. Heel grabber. Isn't that a really an astonishing name to be called heel grabber? But you have to understand what it means to be 
a heel grabber, what the word means. It is a description of his character and his nature. Heel grabber means supplanter. That's not a word we use often in the English language in our culture today. Supplanter. It means one who pursues and usurps the place of another. One who pursues after to get the place that didn't rightfully belong to him, but the place that he desires to take. Heel grabber. It is describing someone who is motivated, who has a passion to seek his own self-advantage. It is a person who is constantly looking for the best seat in the house to take advantage of every weakness of somebody else. Always the idea to be stronger, to be wealthier, to be more pleasing, to somehow have what he doesn't naturally have on his own. And that's what Jacob's name means. Now this place, we know the occasion of it. He is at the strange place. He's somewhere outside the, the city or the village of Luz, a small place just a little ways north of what later will become known as Jerusalem. And he has his first experience with God. In this dream, he sees a stairway that goes all the way to heaven and there are angels moving up and down that stairway from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And at the top of that stairway, he sees the Lord himself who speaks to him and makes some promises to him, who reveals himself to him and his plans for his life. And so as a result, as we've said, he called the place Beth El, the house of God. He thought that somehow, inadvertently, somehow, quite by accident, by coincidence, he had ended up in this place. And there has to be something holy about this place. This is a doorway to heaven. If I had stopped somewhere else, I would have missed it. But this is some holy place that is open to heaven itself. And in response to that, he took the stone that had been his, his pillow. He set it up as a pillar, as a tribute, as a memorial. And he pours oil on it, which is a symbolic act of anointing. And he says, if the Lord will do, if the Lord will do what he said he will do, if God keeps his word to me, then I will make him my God. He bargained with God. I mean, after all, he is the heel grabber. After all, he wants that special place. After all, he wants anything that would prove advantageous to him. So if God does this, then... I... Have you ever bargained with God Sure you have, maybe not so blatantly, but we all do that. You know, if God just will do this, then I'll do this other. He says, if God does this, he's like, he'll not only be my God, but I will give him a tenth. I will tithe to him of everything I make in life. What he did not realize is this key truth. 
God was not seeking his tributes or his tithes. Let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with tributes and tithes. There's nothing wrong with paying honor and respect to God or memorializing events in our lives. But God wanted more than a memorial. He wanted more than a tribute. He wanted more than... What is he going to do with Jacob's tithes? God doesn't need that. What God was looking for was Jacob. He wanted Jacob. Now listen to me, worshipers. It's great for you to memorialize and acknowledge God by being here in this house of worship today, this place we call the house of God, although it's not really... God doesn't dwell in this building any more than he dwelt in just that one space outside the village of Luz some three to 4,000 years ago. But it's good for us to come together corporately. Remember life, there's all of life worship. That's living every moment of every day for God's honor and glory. And there's a time for all together worship as we come together corporately to exalt the Lord. And it's great for you to drop your tithes and offerings in those boxes as a way of acknowledging the lordship of God over you and your possessions. But more than your possessions and your presence, God wants you. That's what Jesus said. God is seeking worshipers. He wants you. He wants your devotion wholeheartedly, completely to him. All right. Jacob and the house of God. Bethel. Bethel. Okay. That's a name you commonly see today as the name of churches. Maybe Bethel Baptist Church or Bethel Methodist Church is a place denoted something holy and special taking place. Okay. So Jacob and the house of God. Now, let's fast forward the story, okay? We're going to fast forward through some of the commercials, and we're going to get 20 years down the road. At least 20 years. It may be as many as 40 years. And you say, well, well, why the discrepancy? And it's because in Genesis about chapter 31, theologians and scholars will disagree whether it's referring to one 20-year time period or two 20-year time periods. But you remember, Jacob makes it to Haran, right? And there he meets Laban, his mother's brother. And there he falls in love with his cousin. Her name was Rachel. And she had an older sister by the name of Leah. And you remember the story of how the deceiver gets deceived, right? Because Laban is even more of a trickster than Jacob is. And so while he is there in Haran working for Laban, and after a period of either 20 or 40 years or something in between, he is there long enough to prosper. He, he grows his own herds, his own flocks. He has now his own servants and workers working for him. And he has gained two wives, not one. And he gets their handmaidens also. So Jacob and four women. And these years later, he has as many as 13 children. 12 sons and a daughter, 
by four different women. If you're wondering how in the world you could end up with 13 kids in 20 years, well, if, you're, if you have four women, you can do that. Not hard. And if it was 40 years, well, whatever. But we find that there is a difference as we turn over now to Genesis chapter 35. Would you turn a few pages over to chapter 35? You need to read these verses for yourself. Now, a lot of events take place, and Jacob, with all of his kids and with his wives and with uh, uh, all of his herds and his flocks, he has now moved away from Haran, and he is going back southward towards his home, okay? And he is coming back to Bethel. Now, there is a very small, see if you can catch it, a very small difference in what the Scripture has to say that, though very small in our English Bibles, is huge in what it means. Genesis chapter 35, verse 6 and 7. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And there he built an altar. And called the place El Bethel. Do you get the difference? Well, there's two very prominent things. One in what he did. And the other in what he called the place. Or what he renamed the place. So this is point number two. And it is Jacob and the God of the house. Point number one, Genesis 28, Jacob and the house of God. Point number two, Genesis 35, Jacob and the God of the house. The place and occasion, well, a bit different, going in the opposite direction from when he had first come to this place, just outside the village of Luz. At that time, he was running away in fear and in rebellion and uh, in disobedience in many ways of maybe how he should have lived. But now he is running towards God in obedience, not away from God in fear. In the first place, he built a pillar in acknowledgement of God. Now he builds an altar. Much as his grandfather Abraham had done. If you read in Genesis about Abraham, his story, on four or five occasions, almost every time Abraham stopped for any length of time in a place, he built an altar. He was an altar builder. Jacob is now an altar builder. And he calls this place not Bethel, the house of God, but El Bethel, the God 
of the house. That seems very small, very insignificant in our language, but I'm going to tell you it's all the difference in the world. Because now the focus is not on the place as it was many years later with the Samaritan woman, either here or there or where are we to worship. But now it's on the person, not the place. It's not some inadvertent, accidental, coincidental window or doorway into heaven Because God owns all the earth and everything in it. And his throne is everywhere. But he is the God of this place where I first met him. He is now a changed man. In his focus, in his worship, in his life, he is a changed man. Do you remember the quote by pastor and author A.W. Tozer, I read to you last week. It was on the front of our worship guide last week. Let me read it to you again. Listen closely. Tozer asked, Why did Christ come? Why was he conceived? Why was he born? Why was he crucified? Why did he rise again? Why is he now at the right hand of the Father? And then Tozer says, The answer to all these questions is this. In order that he might make worshipers out of rebels. In order that he might restore us again to the place of worship. We knew When we were first created, he's talking about the Garden of Eden. Jesus came. Jesus was born. Jesus, God eternal, took on human form. And he lived 33 or so years, a sinless, perfect life. And he died in our place. We as sinners deserved the cross, deserved to die for our sins, deserved to be punished eternally in hell. But Jesus came into time and space to take our place. It's called substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute. He died in our place to make atonement, a covering, to make uh, an atonement for our souls and forgiveness of our sins so that we might can have eternal life in heaven. He did all of that. He rose from the dead. He lives today at the right hand of the Father, worthy of all worship. And he did that to make worshipers out of rebels. Wasn't Jacob a rebel? If there ever was one. And God turned this rebel Jacob into a worshiper. Over this period of time, some things took place in his life that made a difference. That now he comes back and he doesn't see it as a place, the house of God. He sees it now as God of the house. This is where God first revealed himself to me. And we're going to find that God had revealed himself to him several other times since then. 
It made all the difference. And listen, folks. Listen to me, you rebels out there. That's not just some of you, like Hal Hall or Joe Land or Morgan Welch. Every one of us are stinking rebels. We all want to go our own way. We all want our passions fulfilled. We all want to advantage ourselves and our families. We all have to be taught what it means to have a servant's heart and a servant's spirit and a sacrificial life. We all are ones who rebel naturally against God and the ways of God and the things of God and the Word of God until the Spirit of God calls us home and makes a change in our lives. And he turns us rebels into worshipers. That's what he was doing for Jacob. Let, let me just kind of draw it to a close by, by showing you the difference. First of all, there was Jacob, the heel grabber. Jacob, the deceiver that first came to Luz while on the lamb, running for his life, trying to get away from his brother out of fear. And so we find Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver, running from God out of fear and rebellion. These are bullet points that will come up on the screen. And here he has this encounter with God. And so he builds a tribute to God. He acknowledges God. And seeks to bargain with God. If then his focus is on the house of God. A place. It's on the externals. Just in the same way that many rebels today choose their worship. And their place of worship. Not based on truth. But based on preferences. Based on size of the crowd the style of the music, or whatever. That's what it means to be a heel grabber when you pursue your advantage and what pleases you. But now, these years later, Jacob is no longer the heel grabber, but he is the prince with God. Now, where do you get that name prince with God? If you remember, his name gets changed. The Lord says to him, we'll talk about this next week, no longer will you be Jacob, now you will be Israel. Israel, and that name means prince with God. Prince with God. So now this prince with God is not running away from God, but he's running towards God in obedience and submission. He doesn't build a pillar. He builds an altar to God. He doesn't acknowledge God and try to bargain with God. He surrenders to God and walks with God. His focus is not on the place, Bethel, the house of God. His focus is on the God of the house, El Bethel. What made the difference? You see, those two descriptions describe each of us here today. All of us at one time were like Jacob, the rebel. Some of us, God has changed our lives. 
over time dramatically. And we are all now princes with God. And we're moving towards him as aggressively as we can. Some in this service are still the former. Maybe. I don't know your hearts. But we are one or the other. And what is it? What is it that makes the difference? Three words. To be continued. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing story of Jacob a rebel that became a prince with God, a faithful worshiper. Father, help us to be people who don't get caught up with places, but instead with the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we live for him, honor and glorify him in all that we think, in all that we say, in all that we do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.